Hey everyone, this is going to probably seem a little bit strange if you were a listener of the podcast for a long time. I'm, I'm kind of back in the game after a few years off and I don't really want to spend too much time kind of dwelling on that. But essentially what happened is after I did the TV show The Pack on Amazon Prime, I just, it really took me out of the flow of podcasting because I was on the road, I was traveling all the time. It wasn't possible to podcast at that time. And then when I got back, I just never really got into it again. And I know that's that's terrible and that's my own mistake, but I'm, I'm trying to rectify it now. Um, I've actually been recording podcasts for at least a month. I've got a huge bank of incredible episodes, really, really cool interviews to start releasing to you. So if you're worried that, hey, is Nick just going to release an episode or two and then ghost us again? No, not the case at all. I have, uh, I've already recorded so many episodes and I'm really excited. I'm really enjoying podcasting again and reminding myself why I love podcasting. I'm a massive podcast fan. Um, so really excited to kind of get back into the swing of this and bring you some incredible interviews. However, if you notice things change from the way that I used to do podcasts, you know, like different tunes, the logo has changed, uh, etc. Then, you know, it's, I have to move, I have to progress as, as a human being, I guess, and move things on to suit who I am now. I'm, I'm a little bit, um, a little bit hesitant sometimes you know i considered starting a new podcast and just starting afresh but i decided i'd carry on on this feed however what that means is i need you guys to have patience with me if you listen to an episode from four years ago chances are my views have changed they've progressed um i started this podcast when i was quite young um oftentimes as well i think Sometimes people get confused because often as an interviewer, I like to play devil's advocate. I like to ask people hard questions. And sometimes people think that that means that I have a view that I don't. And actually, I'm just trying to uh, push the guest into, you know, explaining their position in a more full way um, or putting criticism to them that maybe I think that someone else might have and making sure that that doesn't go unanswered. So... This episode is with Steve White. I'll let Steve introduce himself at the beginning of this, but Steve White is an absolute animal training legend, uh, especially in the police dog world. I'm sure many of you know him. He was on my list to interview years and years ago, and I just never got around to it. So, yeah, I'm I'm glad to share, share this episode with you. You're really going to enjoy it. Well, hey, Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Nick. Glad to be here. It's great to have you. And I was just saying, I feel like this has probably been a long time coming, although you wouldn't have realized that. This is, you've been kind of been on like a list on a Google document for me for a long time. <laughs> well, you get to the bottom of the document and there I am. <laughs> no, I don't know if you know, but I stopped recording podcasts for a long time, which means that the list never really got completed. But um I'm really glad to to have the chance to talk to you now and uh, really interested to have this conversation. Um, I guess the natural starting place is a little bit cliche, but uh, it it was always helpful if you could give a little bit more information about yourself to people that, that aren't aware of who you are. You know, I'm an old retired cop who, um, you know, has uh, always been into dogs. I was a 
um, son of a single mom long before her Murphy Brown made it hip in the USA to be a single mom. And um, we had a dog and I used to walk him when we lived in New York City back in the 70s, 60s and 70s. And um, I didn't realize that that's when it started for me, but people started paying me to walk their dogs. They'd be busy. They'd be doing something. They say, could you swing by and get our dog? And I do it. And, um, but I always, dogs were always my companions. When I was a kid living in Ohio before that, my dog would wander through the woods with me and we'd, you know, go find frogs and um, that just, it was, it was, you know, an idyllic old, old school life that way. And um, then when I got older uh, and I had to get serious about finding work, I found out that, well, being an engineer made math not fun. I used to thought math was fun. Being an engineer made it not fun. I didn't want to do that. And then uh, got into journalism and then realized, wow, I didn't kind of, that wasn't my my jam either. Um, and started getting kind of aimless. And a bunch of uh, cops kind of took me under their wing and said, you should grow up. And they were canine cops from the Seattle Police Canine Unit. And they said, you know, four years of polite penal servitude to the United States Army would probably do you pretty good. And you'd, and you'd grow up. And it, it worked. I kind of did. And I found out that uh, not only did I love working with dogs and getting a steady government check for that, but I loved, um, I loved the law enforcement side. I loved it, particularly the part with the dogs because you got to find the ones that got away. You had the one tool that would find somebody that had already gotten away. And that was just, that was an amazing thing. And, um, you know, 47 years in, in canine law enforcement, um, most of my, or 47 years in law enforcement, most of it in canine. Um, and on the side for, oh, since the mid nineties, um, I've had a consultancy, um, all species animal behavior stuff, but mostly dogs. And now it's exclusively working dogs. I just, I don't do private clients. I just work with uh, working dog organizations, trying to help them um, tweak things and make those constant adjustments. You said that being an engineer made maths not fun. And I recently posted on Facebook about my own experiences with burnout, which I think is really common in this industry, you know, just kind of, uh, I, well, well, I guess any industry probably, but was there ever times where being a dog trainer made dog training not fun? Oh, there. well, there's that moment that almost all dog trainers have. Cause like, all right, let's, 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 Let's talk about human nature, all right? I'm going to tell on myself as a way of telling on the rest of my community. There are dog people, the DPs, right? Like, we're going to do a giant Venn diagram here. And in one circle, you have the DPs. Those are the dog people. Those are the ones who have the, the bumper sticker says, that says, who rescued who? Dog is my co-pilot. They got T-shirts that say, I, and there's a heart, and then there's dog breed I mean, underneath I'm it. Literally, literally. Yeah, right. Preach, brother. <laughs> all right, so... You I'm got, wearing it on those, those t-shirts right people. now. And <laughs> now I'm just going to say, maybe we're dog people because sometimes we're not so much people, people, but I'm just saying that not, not, not necessarily, but maybe so. There's that set. Then there's this other set. And these are the CPs. These are the people that Dr. Phil and Oprah would say have control issues. That, and they, they do this. And where they overlap... The CPs and the DPs, those are the dog trainers. 
Those are the ones that say, oh my gosh, you mean I can earn a steady check? I can earn money exerting control over another living being? That's the gig for me. And I don't have to deal with people because it's about dogs. Except you and I both know that once you start being a dog trainer, once you start being an animal behavior consultant, all the work is at the loop end of the leash. The clip end's the easy part. You and I could probably train the dog to do whatever those folks wanted within a couple of weeks, but it doesn't do them any good to walk away and then not have the skill to be. So you have to work with this. And then in the process, you find out, oh, this thing where I thought I was going to be training dogs for a living and all that stuff. No, you're working with people. You're, you're darn near a, you know, a family counselor through the process. And I think for a lot of people, that's a piece that starts to burn out. They get more unhappy because they know what the dog's potential is, but they know that these people aren't realizing it. And that, that, and that's something I had to learn to let go of being more invested in people's outcomes than they were than themselves. That, so that the burnout phase for me was that, that was the point at which I realized I can't be more invested in somebody's outcome than they are themselves. I can only help them see the potential and mm -hmm. go from there. And then they got to find their path to it. I'm glad to walk that path with them. Um, if it works, but you know, not everybody chooses to. So I don't know. That's kind yeah, of my route. That's, that's a interesting perspective. And I, I kind of agree. I've kind of come to that conclusion as well myself that I don't tend to get anywhere near as invested as I did previously, especially when you have clients that um, are not willing to put in the amount of work that's required. However, what's the difference between that and you know, uh, compassion fatigue or, um, you know, I think a lot of people will hear that and, you know, we're empathetic, you know, we really want to help people and we really want to provide them with the best service possible. Um, and also people are very worried about this idea of compassion fatigue, which comes along with burnout where you actually just kind of stop caring. Um, so I think it's kind of a Buddhist maxim um, that the root of all suffering is attachment, attachment to outcome. So when you become so attached to certain outcomes and you don't get them, that's what creates the burnout. And part of compassion fatigue, it, it starts with the compassion piece. I want to be a compassionate person. I want to help people out. I, you know, I want to do this. But at some point, you didn't realize that somebody changed your name to Sisyphus and you are continually pushing the rock up the hill because guess what? For every person you help, there's another two needing more for the, every two you help there. There's four more for every four you help. There's eight more. And it, you know, goes on um, exponentially from there. And there's only so much you can do. And if you, I could see where it would get very frustrating. You'd think there's nothing you can do. Like that, it just, that, that's, that to me, I think is where the compassion fatigue comes in is realizing um, that you're not seeing the whole change based on this individual changes you've helped people make. And um, it's hard because, um, you know, there's the old thing about you can't see the forest for the trees. Well, sometimes um, just looking at the trees is not enough and you want to look at the forest. Then all of a sudden you realize, Oh my gosh, oh, yeah. <laughs> what, what have I got in front of me? So. I've also found as a pet dog trainer, oftentimes when I see a case and I do get a result, um, 
they they stop messaging me <laughs> you know they don't say hey look we're, we're doing brilliantly they just stop messaging me <laughs> oh yeah put yourself in the shoes yes. of most pet owners coming into a dog trainer do they walk in through the door saying hi nick i hear you're the person helping this i just want the best relationship with my dog or do they walk in and saying this dog's driving me crazy and if you don't do something he's going to the pound and so most exactly. people are there out of frustration. And when they get their relief out of that frustration, that's all the reinforcement they need. They're good. They're satisfied. I think um, Ian Dunbar says you can get most people's dogs through life in human society knowing only three or four behaviors. You know, if that dog can walk with you without pulling your arm out of its socket, if it can come when you can call it, and you can get it to stay in one place for a moment with a sit, a down, mm -hmm. a stand, or whatever, you can probably get that dog safely through human society without it getting itself in trouble and ha have a, a fairly decent, comfortable life with it. Um, and, but dog trainers want so much more. Oh, they totally oh, do. We want more. We want it. <laughs> we want it more for them. We know what that dog's capable of. And you're just, oh, you, do you have any idea how wonderful it would be if your dog knew this and this and this and this? And they're mm. like, no, I. I don't need that, man. I just need this dog not to make me crazy. Mm, I can't remember who said it now, but I remember a dog trainer saying that actually you need a lot less cues than you think you do. And a lot of things mean the same thing to the dog, but you use different words for them. Uh, you know, like maybe you might say focus or look at me and you might say leave it. And to the dog, it means the same thing. Stop paying attention to that and pay attention to me. Right. And you can reduce cues if you... but. You know, is there the motivation to do it? I guess as dog trainers, we tend, I don't know. I think a lot of us are reinforced by the process, but also just, I laughed a little bit when you started uh, mentioning Buddhism because uh, I can see why you get on so well with Steve Mann. <laughs> he loves his philosophy yeah. and he's always saying, uh, he's always got those little quotes that just tend to stick with you. So, uh, yeah, that just made me It's made a Steve thing. I'm just telling you right now. <laughs> the Tao of Steve. It's a good movie. You ought to watch it. This actually isn't the direction that I envisioned this podcast going. We just kind of, we just kind of went off on a little oh, tangent. Believe, there. Brother, I could take you on tangents like you have never <laughs> dreamed. Um, I really wanted to bring up something. So, in your consultancy... Um, Obviously, you mentioned that you go see a lot of working dogs and I was listening to a podcast with you and you said something which sounded incredible and I had to look it up and it kind of in the podcast I was listening to, it kind of got brushed over and you were kind of onto the next subject where you were talking about Kruger National Park and you were talking about uh, these packs of dogs that search for poachers. And I don't, mm -hmm. it was unclear in what I, the story I heard as to what, what your involvement was in that. Uh, but I looked it up and it's just the most amazing thing. And the thing that you said, which blew my mind, was you said that, uh, so firstly, all of this pack of dogs, are, are they're not on the lead, they're running off lead mm -hmm. and that they can, uh, they can cover or they can track poachers for up to 40 kilometers in under two hours. And I had to do the maths on that because I was like, that's, that's a ridiculous pace. <laughs> 20K an hour, man. Yeah. That's a dead run. And you look at the video of them from the helicopter, and those dogs are at a dead run, most of it. They get tired, they stop, they rest themselves in the shade, they get thirsty, they drink. 
mm-hmm. um, you know, from a local watering hole or stream, and then boom, they're back at it again. They lose the track. The dogs split up and start mm-hmm. sniffing around until one of them picks up the, the trail again. And that dog will hit the trail and it will bay. And when that dog bays, the other dogs honor the bay, join back up with it, and the pack is back up, back hunting um, again on the trail. Um, it's amazing stuff. I wish I could say I had a hand in training them. I wish I could say that I helped them take that stuff. But every piece of the credit goes to Johan von Straten and his crew working at Kruger. He is the one that was a visionary. Yeah, uh, there's a really good crew of people there that are trying their best to keep the animals alive in that park. And the sad part is, is they're the, the animals, um, some of them are being killed because just people need food. Um, others are being killed because people in other countries want one little piece of that animal and the rest of the animal goes, just goes to waste, like, you know, rotting in the sun. It just, it's a heartbreak. And so they want to stop it. And they've, mm-hmm. they've had amazing results. Um, but it's still, it's a talk about a Sisyphean task. Mm-hmm. That's, did you, uh, did you, is this something that you witnessed yourself or, or just, you just saw no, a presentation? I, I, I got to, uh, so <laughs> I've attended a working dog conference in, in Africa for a number of years. I'm probably not going to be able to make it this year. They're going to have it again. The working dog workshop will return to South Africa this year. It's been uh, in Kenya and Zambia um, took a hiatus during COVID and, and now it's coming back to South Africa, which is where I first saw uh, Johan uh, present on this and looked at the work. Um, and then I got to work with him, in, you know, in Kenya, watched him with dogs. And I'm like, I'm one of those people that as soon as I got a dog there, I'm just quickly trying to shape behavior. I'm not even whatever the dog finds reinforcing, I'm willing to give it to him. If he's like, doesn't climb on me, this and that. And Johan is just, no, he's just letting dogs climb all over him. He's loving them. These, these hound mixes are just, you know, and you can tell this man loves his dogs and loves what they do. And they produce an amazing product. And I, I you know, watching the videos of them working, it's amazing. Absolutely yeah, amazing. Yeah, I was really... Uh, I don't want to spend too long on this if this isn't a project that you were you were kind of involved in too much. But um, I was really curious about the efficacy of that because so much of the tracking we see is done at a slower pace. To see dogs like doing it at that crazy pace makes me wonder how much the accuracy is sacrificed. Dude, you're from you're you're from the UK, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, England. <laughs> Um, like the land of foxhounds, uh-huh. those dogs go so fast, you got to get on a horse to keep up with them. That's the first thing I was thinking of, actually. When I saw the videos, it reminded me a lot of fox hunting. Yeah. yeah. It, it very, I mean, you're harnessing elements of, a, of the dog's nature. And don't look at this. Go look at some of the, you know, channel your inner David Attenborough and go look at the wild dogs of Africa. You know, go look at wild cannons all around. Watch a pack of wolves. When when they get a scent, they'll move quickly on it, and then they act as a team to, to deal with it. Uh, these dogs haven't got an aggressive bone in their body. They find them, and they just want to lick them. So the handlers and the arrest teams have to protect the dogs, you know, because everybody you're going after has, a, has by definition, a sniper rifle. They got mm-hmm. something big enough to take down a rhino or an elephant. 
it's big enough to take you down. And so they, you know, these people and, and dogs are going into harm's way, but they, they have a, a fairly good safety record. So. So when we're doing tracking training, the slowing down is maybe more for us than uh, for the dog's sake. I really it, wanted to get track into tracking training with you, Steve, because I think that's one of the things that I find interesting about you is you actually have quite a different way of teaching tracking which I want to get to at some point. <laughs> I've been accused of being different all my life. So that, that I'm used to it, man. When dogs go, when, I mean, I'm a tracking newbie, Steve. So, you know, please don't uh, judge me too hardly. But oftentimes when we're, when we're doing tracking uh, training, sometimes like dogs that are newer to it, sometimes they try to go really fast and then they start making mistakes you know, then they start missing turns and stuff like that because their enthusiasm gets the better of us, mm -hmm. uh, gets the better of them, which is, is I guess, why when I see them moving really quickly, I'm like, oh, hang on a minute. Th you know, are we losing some accuracy here? But obviously not. Um, it depends. I, you know, I'm sorry. If we keep talking about things like this, you're going to hear those two words out of my mouth a lot. Um, <laughs> and, you know, um, so the system that I used to train tracking dogs came because the city of Seattle started becoming more urbanized and the way we had been training before was hurting us. It was getting in the way of the dogs being really comfortable doing it in an urban environment. Um, can you explain, so a lot of people won't know what we're talking about. So can you explain how you trained tracking dogs very briefly? I know that's kind of difficult, but I'll like, start with what, the old way. Okay, okay. And, and it's a way that's common. A lot of people still use it and more power to you. Um, and that is you take somebody the dog naturally wants to find or somebody who the dog uh, wants to play with because they have that sacred toy, the toy, the holy of holies toy, the one the dog will, you know, would do anything for. And they tease them up with it. And then they disappear around the corner, go a little bit, and then they hide behind a bush or building or something like that. And then the dog gets out there and eventually the dog figures out, oh, running around and just with my head up doesn't do me nearly as much good as paying attention to where this person walked because everywhere you walk, you disturb the ground. And everywhere you walk, you're depositing, you know, skin cells and volatile organic compounds are coming out of your breath, out of the sebaceous glands on your skin, out of the, um, out of your sweat glands. <clears throat> and they're falling on the ground and dogs can follow that. You lose 50 million skin cells a day, 40,000 a minute. You wind up um, putting out, uh, at, when you're at a walking pace, you're losing skin cells at a rate of about a hundred uh, every square foot at a three mile an hour walking pace. So if you think about it, you know, once the dog realizes that that's the path to finding you, then you have a dog do it. Now the, my, the trouble with that approach was, and we we started out actually in the cemeteries. We only worked at night in those days. The Seattle Police Department canine unit um, was the, the the cemeteries, the funeral homes, loved having us in the cemeteries because we kept the vandals out. And we kept the late night, you know, teenage keggers. You know, kids would go in there and party at, at night. We kept them out because they just did, you know, we didn't have to do anything. Just the fact that we were there, they go somewhere else. And it was pretty great tracking grounds. I mean, beautifully manicured grass in a dewy Pacific Northwest evening. It was like, it was made for it. If you turn on your flashlight, you could see the footprints in the dew. 
And it, you had built-in tracking stakes. You know, go straight, take a right at the first headstone, straight again, take a left at the next headstone, and hide behind a monument, all right? Or hide behind the bush. And it worked pretty well for us in the old days, and dogs learned to hunt and find people that way. They were very excited and very fast. And then what we found was when we started getting into a more urbanized environment, um, that early foundation um, hurt us because under stress and under arousal, the dogs wanted to find grass. They wanted to, you know, that was, that was something, and, they, and it was really hard to teach them to focus on the less distinct uh, disturbance that a person has when they walk across concrete or asphalt. And so we had to start from scratch. And we borrowed from a Schutzen trainer by the name of Godfrey Dildai, who starts his dogs for Schutzen training in a plowed field, walking on just dirt with the dogs, putting their nose into a fresh footprint of freshly plowed dirt, finding a treat in every single one of them. Um, and we originally, we tried actually making our own spray. So we made a, what we called scent in a bottle. And we would pour, we'd take some distilled water, uh, unchlorinated water, because you could use well water and that you don't want chlorine in there because it kills bacterial activity. And a lot of what the dogs smell is not you, but the bacteria they're eating your skin cells and, and other, uh, you know, off products that they, they get. And we didn't want to, we didn't want to interfere with that. So we put set in a bottle by taking somebody, have them tell them, go out work in your yard, go play basketball, take that t-shirt, bring it in that night. We'd put it in a bucket, pour that distilled water, pour that into a garden sprayer. And we would spray that onto the ground. Um, then after working with a bunch of different dogs in seminars and workshops, found out you didn't need that. Just the water alone was enough to make the, the person's path on the ground salient enough for the dog to be curious and interested enough to want to follow it. Uh, we paired it with food so that they had a classically conditioned reason to put their nose in the ground. So now the method involves putting treats on the ground in the beginning, as close as four inches apart and letting the dog just associate the food with the water. And in the background, they're picking up the human scent that's there. And once the classical association is there, that when this, as soon as that dog gets that thing, he's like, you see, he's like, I'm ready to go. Oh, I love this. This is easy, free food off the ground. <laughs> I've died and gone to heaven. Once you get the dog to that point, then you can start fading out the food, fading out the spray. And then there's nothing but the, the treat there. And then you turn articles. Uh, now, it used to be we just have them do that until they found the person. But now we use articles as the pay stations. So we'll leave initially some larger things for the dog to find that's been handled by the track layer. We teach them away from the track to lie down at that. And they get paid at that point. We'll pay them with food. That's my preferred approach. Uh, some people will pay with toys. Uh, but I find that it gets the dogs pretty spun up. And it's, it, it, can, it can cause some problems. So the spray of the water is just to make the track more like salient, more... Well, the, more. Uh, two things. One, it, it has a, there are a bunch of reasons. One is it increases salience. Two is it actually acts as an adhesive for the skin rafts that fall down there. <clears throat> it actually rehydrates the skin rafts. It keeps the, the bacterial activity alive longer. So you, you get more use out of them in that point. Uh, in the beginning, it's a visual reference, so the dog knows where the where the where the next treat's going to be coming from, and I don't care about that uh, because we try to get them off the the visual component as quickly as we can. <coughs> and um, 
one of the things that um, the real advantages to this, where the water is really powerful, is later on after you faded out the treats and the and the water, and you're trying to build a new skill, or you're trying to fix a problem, you can bring the water back, and fade it out very easily, very systematically, and it's not as um, a big a um, intrusion into the dogs figuring out how to solve the problem for himself as putting a whole bunch of food drops down. When there are food drops on the ground, they're thinking about the food. They're not thinking about this. And that's, we actually harness that in the beginning. They're not thinking about following the track. They're just thinking about eating this food off the ground. And the water just happens to be there with it. Oh, the water actually leads me to more food. Okay, great. Oh, mm -hmm. the water's not so strong anymore, but I can still smell this. Okay, that's great. Mm -hmm. And then when you're not using that anymore you get there or it takes me to where that article is mm -hmm. and, and ideally now i've modified the method over what you see out there and we start with back training from the articles first i you know there are a lot of people that are doing dick stall is doing it in europe um you know once i realized wait a minute i'm back training explosives detection i'm back chaining narcotics detection why don't i back chain tracking and so and i'm going to give a shout out to an american uh nose work trainer by the name of Michelle Garlic, who asked me that question. She says, why aren't you back chaining? And for the first time I was busy defending what I was doing. And then I realized, oh, darn it, she's right. Okay, so hang, hang on a minute, because I think it's easy to get lost there. So when you're talking about back chaining, you're talking about using, so are you replacing the food on the track with the article on the track? And you've already taught right. the indication. Right. And then the dog is learning to go from article to article. Yeah. Is that right? And and actually, I used to say, while you're doing this food on the on the, on the on the ground thing, off away from that, teach the article piece and then bring them together later. Um, I think you get even better results if you teach the article piece first and get the dog finding that thing on short stints and then just use the food and water, build that classical association so that you can use the water to help them on those rough spots because you're going to get in cities and in harsh environments like the desert and places like so that. So you don't even start with the food on the track now, you just go where the article's... Uh, I will. I still do both. I still. I. St I still do both because I'm making the classical association. But I spend way less time trying to get the dog moving linearly on the track than I did before. I'd rather get that dog loving to find the articles. And if you look at the, you know, the latest work we do, I mean, the articles they're finding are nothing but a metal washer. That's mm -hmm. about, you know, um, three four centimeters in diameter at most. Um, so they're. They're, they're not that big. And um, uh -huh. you'll see a dog really, they'll be moving along a track really well. And then when they get near that thing, especially mm -hmm. if they're somewhat to the down one side, you'll see them really yeah. start casting around trying to find it. They're like, oh, this is, uh -huh. this is what I know I'm, this is where I'm going to get paid. Oh, this is really interesting. I, you know, we started off uh, very far away with the kind of like people running and hiding. <laughs> and then we, and then I think we ended up in the same point because. This is essentially what I've been taught as well, uh, teaching a dog to go from article to article in the beginning. The only thing, the only thing different is the spray, mm -hmm. uh, which which uh, I haven't been taught previously, but I knew that was something that you did. Uh, and that's interesting. The old method that you described where someone just hides uh, and then it gets progressively harder. That's actually something we do in our just pet dog classes, just as like a fun activity for the dogs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And it's really good for that purpose. Because when I started off doing tracking classes, try, I was actually trying to do uh, food on the track because that's the way I initially learned how to track. You know, so just food on the track and then reducing the food gradually. Um, but I found pet owners found it quite boring. So yeah. then I switched to the old... I, call, I think of that as man-trailing where the dog is looking for the person, but the person's out there to be found and he's just hiding behind a tree or something like that and it gets progressively harder. I don't know so if you draw a distinction. Between tracking, working tracking and fun stuff? Now, it seems like now there are so many different terms. Uh, you know, people talk about uh, man tra tracking. Man no, I'm getting myself confused. <laughs> man, -trailing? man trailing, tracking. Um, I'm trying to think of other ones. But there's definitely a, a big... Dis some people will draw a distinction between man trailing and tracking, certainly. Mm-hmm. I used the definitions from William Syratuck's book, Scent in the Scenting Dog, and he has air scenting dogs, trailing dogs, and tracking dogs as the three primary ways. And he was a search and rescue oriented trainer. So, um, you know, that those are the three primary ways by which a dog can find somebody. Um, and tracking is defined basically by how close the dog is to the person's footsteps. Trailing is how much of the person's, uh, what should we say, sloughed scent components, skin rafts, VOCs, um, perspiration, are available to it. And they will drift farther away from the, the trail, but roughly follow the line of the trail, but farther than a tracking dog will. And then air scent dogs they will follow an air current from downwind to upwind to where the person is, mm -hmm. not following the ground scent. And that, I don't think, at least for my operational purposes, I don't need to, to make any bigger distinction than that. Now, the description that you found, you know, what you saw about the human nature of people having way more fun when their dogs are playing hide and seek with them. I mean, think about it. Go to Yak Panksepp the neuroscientists from Washington State University, the late Yank Pangsep, who I, this man made, helped me make sense of what I was seeing for a long time. Play is a more powerful motivator than food for many, many dogs. Food, you can get satiated and you're done. Play is something you do until you're exhausted. And, um, and that, that engagement of the seeking circuit as a form of play is a double win. You know, and here's the thing that Panksepp found is that when the animal was engaged in the seeking process, the actual process of trying to look for something, their dopamine levels were higher than when they actually got it and were enjoying it. Mm -hmm. You'd think that when you got the thing, your dopamine levels would be up. And, you know, that's that's very consistent with my experiences as well. Um, when we have done that kind of older style of training where we're just running and hiding, mm -hmm. with the more experienced dogs, I've had it happen so many times. And people, I think... A lot of dog trainers like don't really believe it until they see it. Where the dog actually stops taking the food, yeah, like because they're just more interested in playing the game. Oh yeah, and I've had that happen with um, I've had that happen with tracking as well, actually. Uh, yeah. where the dog will go over the it blows food. over over or every treat, and then uh, less experienced people are like, "Hey, you missed a treat." <laughs> And I'm like, no, don't worry. That's a sign where we can use less food. <laughs> so with our system, when we put food on the ground, we we count treats hit, not tre treats eaten. In the beginning, it's treats eaten. 
But once they start realizing, hey, this is fun, there's something at the end. And you have to be careful because as soon as they realize that there's some fun at the end, animals will concentrate on the ends rather than the means. And then all of a sudden, that's when you see them start getting frantic and losing, you know, so it's a, it's a, it's a balancing act that you have to walk with them in that, in that regard. And people who never use treats on the ground, they don't run into that because it's always about what's at the end. And then eventually some of the really good dogs will enjoy the process so much that the tracking becomes or the trailing becomes self-reinforcing. They don't, you know, they don't need a whole lot of pay along the way. Just being right is like enough for them. Yeah. We have human beings who being right is enough for them. We call that dysfunctional. When it's a tracking dog, it's like, oh, yes, we want that that dog. How much are you bothered when you have a tracking dog? Um, if they lift their nose off of the ground and actually start to rely more on us, and is that something that bothers you or are you not really fussed? Not as much as it used to. I, I, I you know, the first thing, like I, I worked recently with um, a group of law enforcement officers in the, in in the United States and in a pretty harsh environment. And um, they had seen some European trainers and, you know, watching a dog work the scent that is available and produced in Germany or the Netherlands compared with the Mojave desert or the Sonoran desert or something like that. The scent conditions are so different. You can't expect the dogs to be, uh, to operate the same way. I mean, it's just, it, 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 it's like it's on a different planet. Um, and so I stopped worrying about it. And all I found was, can the dog negotiate the track? You know, if you're, if you're a Schutzen competitor, and then you get, your dog will be penalized for every time it steps off of the track, trying to cast and pick it up, you'll lose points for that. You'll lose points for overshooting a turn, casting and correcting on it. They love, if it's, that would be, that's a synthetic construct and that's what they're training for, more power to them. I'm lucky. I was in law enforcement. So what? If if I found evidence or I found a, a, a if I found evidence, that was a line drive in the box score. You know, that's American baseball term. You guys just had, had games I, I assume that's there. a good thing. <laughs> it's a good thing. And if I, if I come up with a bad guy, you know, if I track five blocks through the city from the local stop and rob that this guy just knocked over into somebody's backyard where this guy's hiding underneath this innocent family's deck, well, that's a home run. That, you know, and you know what? I didn't get style points. <laughs> it didn't matter. If the dog was footstep for footstep or overshot every single turn on the way, as long as the dog knew he was out of it, corrected, caught himself and went on it, we worked that way. Now, I will tell you, the more time a dog spends correcting for overshoots, the less likely they are to be able to successfully negotiate the end. So I want to find that sweet spot of where they can stay calm and focused. And so one of the advantages of doing the food this is why I still do the food is because it ties um, a classically conditioned emotional response to the spray that I can do this. And, and I keep them eating the food with the spray until they're calm. So like 
some of these police dogs we get coming from Europe are so spun up that in the beginning, they, they're just frantic about every bite of food. They're frantic about everything and they're bouncing all over the place. And we don't even put them on a track. We just spray a circle on the ground, fill it with treats and let them eat that until they trust that. You, you mean this is real? Like, I don't have to do anything more than just like stand here and eat this. I don't have to run. I don't have to jump. I don't have to do any. I don't have to bite anything. I don't have to carry anything. Yeah. I don't have to climb. I can just like just kind of walk here easy and eat them. When they get to that point that they believe that this is real and you can go ahead and get some more of it. And I know I'm being anthropomorphic when I say that. Go ahead. Behavior analysts spank me on the wrist. I, I deserve it. But when I see that dog no longer exhibiting the behaviors indicative of arousal, but instead I see that calm, clear focus where all that energy is there in front of them that, and is just contained and being focused on the activity, now I know I've got it. Then I can bring that spray back later on and actually calm them down in situations where they would otherwise get frantic. Because really good tracking dogs, sometimes when they lose it, they get frantic. Oh my gosh, I lost. I got to get back on this. Huh? And spray will help them get back to it a little faster and they can relax and they can calm down and then we can fade the spray out. That's interesting. I wonder if that is uh, at all like breed dependent or, or anything like that, because I don't know how much of a, an effect arousal has, uh, like a negative effect for some dogs for example you know if you see like a, a working cocker spaniel doing scent work they're super aroused but they're also incredible at their job right so like how how much of a negative effect you know is that always a problem or is that always something to focus on it's dep it depends upon what they're doing with that arousal if that arousal is focused on the activity you're fine if that arousal is turns them into frenetic stuff where they're all over the place and they'll run through scent plumes multiple times, then they're wasting their time and energy. You know, I, I've, I've seen those dogs. I had one that believed me because that his name was Taz as in the Tasmanian devil, you know, like from the cartoons. And um, yeah, that dog taught me something, you know, I guess my, my point is that, um, so I'm going to actually take you on a tangent. I'm going to tell your viewers to go to YouTube and put in coyote fishing into the search bar, coyote fishing. And you'll see a video of a coyote walking along, along a grassy field, uh, along near a stream. And all of a sudden at that stream, you see the dog go, huh? What? And it perks up. It goes down in the stream, stands in the water for a second, quickly shoves its head in the water, comes back up with a fish, a trout. Gets up on the bank, drops it on the bank, goes back to the stream. Next thing you know, that trout has flopped back into the water. He loses it. That dog goes back and catches two or three more fish, or that coyote goes back there and catches two, two or three more fish with no wasted effort. This is, like, to me, this is the perfect working dog. No wasted effort, no energy focus, but exactly the right amount of energy to get the job done. Oh, by the way, on the second fish that had, it made sure that that one wasn't going to get away. It went in, took it farther up on the bank, didn't let it get as close, and and quickly uh, bit it in the head and killed it, as opposed to leaving it there to flop away. Um, 
you know, that's life and that's how that animal survives. And it learned from one experience. It says, okay, I'm not going to make that mistake again. How clear headed is that? Isn't that what you want in your service dogs, mm -hmm. in your police dogs, in your detector dogs, dogs that solve <clears throat> problems without being frantic? That to me is like the ideal rate of, um, or the ideal level of arousal, what it takes to get the job done, period. Mm. No, with yeah, no it's waste. just interesting. Like I think arousal was like a really, uh, like almost controversial topic at this point because there's almost been like an overcorrection with arousal, you know, where people have uh, become a little obsessed with it, you know? Uh, you know, if the dog gets really aroused, then it's, we need to calm the dog down. We need to calm the dog down instead of just focusing on, is the dog able to do the task that we're here asking is, them to do? Here is one of the biggest mistakes the the modern training community has made is they've become afraid of arousal. Yeah, I totally they, agree. They, 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 in fact, you've got entire systems built around don't let the dog go over threshold. How many times have you heard that? Don't let the dog go over threshold. And I understand that, that that you're trying to keep that dog at that at the sweet spot in the Yerkes-Dodson curve. So are you familiar with the Yerkes-Dodson curve? Only through listening to your podcasts with other people, Steve. So you should probably explain it for people that... So Yerkes-Dodson curves, uh, you know, a couple of researchers uh, did some work and research to support their hypothesis that learning occurs at an optimal rate. Work performance occurs at an optimal rate when there is sufficient arousal to be interested in it, but not so much that you're frenetic and you and you lose focus. If it's not interesting enough, you're bored. And if you're over aroused, you're stressed. And in like we're, we're talking distress, not you stress. So there's this sweet spot at the top of the curve where learning is optimized with the right level of arousal. Now, I'm going to say that because I work with police dogs, and you can ask Robert Hewings, you know, talk to your UK people about this too. You don't, you can be the best trainer in the world and best, you can have the best actors and, and decoys, people playing your, your bad guys for you. <coughs> and you cannot replicate the level of arousal and things that are going to happen in a real-world deployment to a police dog. You can best simulate, but you can never replicate. And so you can never truly know for sure 100% if that dog is going to respond the same way in those circumstances. So the only thing you can hope to do is in your training is overtrain. Train the dog for more than you expect to operate under so that when you get there, the dog has a globalized understanding that it can still operate when it's in arousal and pull itself back. One of the things, like I have this debate, there's some good trainers I respect and we have this friendly debate between us. Uh, I still believe there is something called impulse control and they say, no, it's all stimulus control. And, and I say, if I want to put that much work into my life with my dog where I constantly have to keep that dog under a cue to maintain stimulus control, then that's more load than I can maintain all the time and still do the rest of my job. So having impulse control and teaching a dog to go over threshold and then pull itself back is a really useful skill. Like, because it's going to happen. Your dog may get startled by something and go, and at that point, what do you do? Do you just give up and say, oh, he's over threshold, you know, reset, let's go do this again. Or 
can you work on a skill for that dog that when it's at that state, it can say, oh, I don't need to spin up like that. Okay, let's come back. That's ideally what what we want uh, for working dogs. Um, yeah, I remember there was a study by Daniel Mills and one of the biggest like um, indicators of success for working dogs was resilience, ability to bounce back from stress. So mm-hmm. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, a bit of a change in topic, Steve, but obviously over the last however many years, you've kind of become the like poster boy for uh, positive dog training in the police dog world. Um, and I, I think focusing more on uh, dogs that bite <laughs> than dogs that sniff, because I think it's kind of almost a little bit of a different culture. And not so long ago, I did a podcast with Ivan Balabanov. We spoke for probably about three hours on e-collars. And I have a lot of um, friends in the UK police who, and I'm not saying that e-collars are never used in police or anything like that, but that I have friends that are in the police that swear to me that they're able to get results with police dogs without using e-collars. However, when I brought this up with Ivan, he was kind of saying that those people are being dishonest with you. The only reason they're saying that is because they know kind of they know who you are and so they're being guarded. They don't want to uh, kind of tell you the truth about the situation. So I'm I'm curious, Steve, what is your position on that? Are you someone, have you used e-collars? Do you use e-collars? What is your position? I have. I, you know, I got to remember, I came from a force-based system. My, my first obedience training was based on a, you know, on a system that had been developed in Hollywood that, was largely negative reinforcement based, you know, and um, I transitioned after my f- first 25 years. Like I said, I have 47 years in this, but I don't have 47 years experience because you know what? There's a difference between 20 years experience and one year of experience 20 times over. Say that again though, Steve, you transitioned 25 years ago to positive training. Is that what you're yeah, saying? I, it, at, at, yeah. In the, I started transitioning actually I started transitioning very early in my career because my first dog in the army bit the crap out of me, <laughs> bit me out, put me back two weeks in school. I wound up having to come back with a different dog. Um, and I didn't know um, what was going on, but I knew there had to be a better way. And so I was always looking for a better way. I was reading everything I could find. Every time I thought I found the book that had the answer, the next dog I got apparently hadn't read the same dang book. So, you know, I, I was, I was stuck, but I did. um, I did figure out that the less force I used with the dog, the more I elicited the dog's cooperation because we, we found out that worked well for us, the less I needed to use it. Mm Mm-hmm. Does that mean that you? um, And I'm proud to say that for the longest time, whatever e collars I had, um, you know, stopped working because it'd been so long since they'd been used. All right. right? That said, uh, I will still work working with some police dogs. uh, We'll put one on them, not so much as a way to um, to correct them in there, but more as a cue carrier. Uh, are, are you familiar with um, the work of Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman and the Force Science Institute and a place like that? It's no, really no. interesting. When you get in a lethal force encounter, when you get into a real, real Donnybrook, a couple of things happen to your physiology when the adrenal system kicks in. 
you get sensory exclusion. You get tunnel vision. You are focused on the enemy, on your opposition, on whoever it is, where the threat is, and everything else kind of gets faded out. Some people will say it's dark. Other people will say it's blurry and everything, their focus is there. You'll have auditory exclusion. If you're in a firefight with a gun, you won't hear your own gun go off. You will have a hard time keeping track of how many times you fired because you can't count the bangs. Um, and this happens all the time. Uh, you'll have less sensitivity to touch. I mean, think about it. If you're involved in combat, do you want a body that is more or less sensitive to touch? Probably less. So these are all evolved traits that are um, common to mammals. So what we found was that um, in combat, in real struggles with real bad guys who really want to hurt them, some of those dogs, the sensory exclusion, they couldn't really attend to their handler's cues. And we tried to simulate it as best we could in training, but we found that we could not replicate one thing that, that actually happened in those lethal force encounters or those violent encounters. What do you think that piece is? You mean like the ability for the dog to, you're talking about the ability for the dog to listen to, to the cue essentially when they're well, in the, a fight, yeah, fight environment. What, so what discriminative stimulus tells <laughs> the dog this is different in this deployment as opposed to in this training scenario? I guess it's, it's the real violence, right? The real, the real fighting. It, yeah, the reality of it. The fact that the best decoy in the world, the best quarry in the world will not have the intent to hurt that dog, will not carry the emotional component to it. And I, I'm a firm believer dogs can detect our emotional states through changes in our physiology. I've seen enough dogs that oh, get close. I agree with that. Totally. All right. Yeah, I think that's pretty well established as well, right? Yeah. And what we found is that becomes a discriminative stimulus says, this is different. All bets are off. I'm going to do this. So what we found was, is that you could use, with some dogs, you could do it with just with the vibration cue. And other dogs, it took a low-level electrical stimulation to be at tap on the shoulder said, hey, the cavalry's here. We're in this together. Pay attention. We're going to do something. Um, so that's ideally where you, where you go for it. But I will say that, um, you know, after I left my agency, we, Seattle had never lost a dog to suspect action in over 50 years. And then um, a while after I left, one of our dogs was killed in, in, in an event where it was stabbed. And in that event, the handler was trying to give him that tap. And, but the pain he felt from the stabbing overruled it. And he just wasn't, wasn't clear. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, it's a heartbreak. And, I, you know, this is... This is the moral dilemma every police canine trainer faces. We're asking an animal to do something that it can't fully consent to the way a human being can and put themselves at risk. And that always troubles me. But I'm also going to say that I've never seen dogs that love their work more than these dogs. They, every day. Are you kidding? They think their day-to-day -day life is going to play the best game of hide-and-seek and tug of war ever. This is like that, that it's, they love it day to day. Um, so I, I do this. And in the end, I said, you know, I can have a dog. I'd rather console a handler on the loss of his or her dog than to console a spouse on the loss of his or her law enforcement spouse. And so that's how I sleep at night with making the decisions I made as a police supervisor and a trainer. Um, but it's not easy. It's hard. I still, you know, 
I still have dreams. So No, I'm glad that you clarified that because I think a lot of people felt like you were totally against all use of e-collars with police dog training. For a while, there was a time, this is that moment where we started this conversation out wishing you could take some of the things you said back. I really wanted to believe it. it, it theoretically, it's possible, but I think um, practically, it's probably not, or it may not be um, actually the best use of the training to do it. Um, and again, I, I, I subscribe to Bob Bailey's approach. Are you familiar with Bob Bailey? I love Bob Bailey. I've had him on my podcast. Okay. You know, Bob will tell you, he doesn't teach with aversives. He will use punishment. And when he uses it, he plans it out as or more precisely than he uses his positive reinforcement. Um, and I found that most of the time when I'm thinking about using an aversive, um, I can plan my way out of it and we don't. So a lot of times we start the plan in motion, we develop it and we do this. And I have nine rules for <clears throat> using punishment. And, um, is it nine you now? Tried, I thought it was eight at one point. Well, it was eight at one point, but I've added a ninth. And the ninth, the only one I've added to it is never forget that by definition, punishment is reinforcing to the punisher. Yeah. Because it makes the annoying thing stop. It makes, yeah. this is where the problem with electronic collars are. The problem is not with the tool. I, I don't have a problem with guns. I don't have a problem with electronic collars. I don't have a problem with anything. I have a problem with people who don't fully understand what they're doing using them. That's where the problem lies. It's not with the object. The object is, you know, I've got a hard drive on my table. It can't do anything. It's not going to be a problem. Somebody else has a hard drive on their table and it's filled with child porn. Yeah, that's a problem. All right. Do you think, so, that, do you think that there are police forces doing it without e-collars um, or... Are you kind of with Ivan on this one in that you you think it it's not either not possible or it actually like degrades the quality of the police dogs to like such a significant I, degree? So I've talked with trainers who've said they've done it. And I think it's possible with some dogs and some people, but I think and it's and and the culture's different in the UK than in the United States. I I, I say the US right now is in a real at a real crossroads with police canine. And unless they're careful, they're going to lose dogs uh, because we've had an explosion of dogs uh, in law enforcement. Uh, a lot of them are coming, you know, a lot of small agencies are getting them. Police chiefs love having police dogs there. They're a great community relations tool until they're not. Until you have that one, you know, harrowing event that's now caught on body-worn video. And all of a sudden, boom, the cost-benefit analysis isn't so favorable. And the trouble is, all it takes is one event like that in one town for something to become a federal-level case decision. You know, you know when, a, when the Supreme Court or an appellate court comes down and lays down a decision like that, it affects the ripples. The, the ripples will hit every law enforcement agency that in that court's jurisdiction. You know, in my circuit, on the Ninth Circuit here on the on the West Coast, um, you know, it's the most overturned circuit of all, but we still have to abide by it while we're here. 
um, until the Supreme Court, you know, takes a different tack. Um, and that's nope. that's a good thing. I don't I, have a problem with that. Yeah, I'm uh, no, I'm really glad that we can kind of talk about this. Um, I think it's such a heated topic. You know, I, I spent probably, like I said, two, three hours arguing with Ivan about it because I'm not a huge fan of them. Um, but equally, what's more important to me is is like getting to the truth of the matter than than like being right on it. Um, and and so I just want to I just wanted to kind of get get I I guess that podcast kind of prompted me to to do some thinking about it. Um, yeah, so I don't know. It's it's an interesting it's an interesting topic. You know, here in the UK, it's a strange time right now because. Um, this topic is especially heated because uh, there's news that they're going to be banning e-collars. And within that bill, there is an exemption for military, but there actually isn't an exemption for police. Mm -hmm. um, Are you talking about in the UK? That's right, yeah. Well, yeah, because the Home Office is already essentially banned, is my understanding. In, you know, and, and having worked with... Um, some law enforcement agencies over there, I, you know, they said, yeah, those, those are the rules we're not allowed to. Now, I will tell you that some of those, there were some of those said the rules aren't allowed to, and then they will, they did say specifically, but sometimes we have to do what we have to do. I think that and happens then, in a lot of they, places. Then they, then they say, but it's quick, it's over with, and we're done with it. We don't have to go back. And ideally, if you are going to use an aversive, that's the way it should be. But I'm glad um, that I, I, I'm glad I, I'm I like I'm not a zealot really, and I think that if they're going to be used, then in the most considered way possible, as you've described, is the best way to do it. And maybe there are situations in which is the best solution, you know. And uh, that does I don't know. I I guess people can draw their own conclusions, but uh, talking to a lot of people that are experts in their fields, and yeah, it's kind of you can get some amazing responses from dogs without resorting to punishment. I mean, believe me, my, my, I, <laughs> you know, we could talk about the, the, the few times that I use aversives and do this, but like when I go to police canine conferences with handlers I've never worked with before, I will tell you that most of the time I'm trying to heal the rift in the relationship between the dog and that handler. And there's one really simple test. Really, you know, you talked about biting dogs, okay? Here's the thing. Take a, take a decoy in a full suit or a sleeve, doesn't matter. Send that dog 30 feet away from the handler to go seize that, that, that sleeve or that person and hold on to him. Have that person continue to give that dog a good fight and let it sit there for about 10 or 15, 20 seconds. And then tell the handler, just without saying a word, walk up towards your dog and that person. What do you think will happen Nine times out of ten, with most police dogs, I'm guessing the dog isn't going to want to want to leave the the decoy. Or are you oh. saying that? Uh, are you saying they're going to anticipate an aversive? Is that where you're going with this? Well, they they think most of the time when that handler comes up, that means the party's going to end. Oh, I see. So most yeah, of the okay, time, okay. so what will happen is that dog yeah. will hear the handler coming and go rut roll. Next thing you know, they will start trying to spin around and interpose the decoy between them and the handler because it makes it harder for the handler to then remove yeah. them from the bite. Because yeah. in many parts of early training, you actually don't cue the release. You actually build intensity in the dog by, by 
by for, compelling them off. And then, then all of a sudden the frustration and you build them up and then they get an, another opportunity. Um, yeah, this is the not ideal, here. but the whole point, the, but the point is, is if that's the dog, if the, I got a problem as a, as a cop, as a police officer, if my dog thinks that I'm not the cavalry coming to help him, if that dog thinks I'm here to end the party, then I got a real problem and I have to fix that because mm -hmm. as soon as I have to use my hands to control my dog, I'm no longer useful as a police officer anymore. So the less I have to physically control my dog, the more I can get him under good stimulus control. And Ivan will tell you that he, he's a believer. Yeah, you can do that with the electronic collar. I believe you can do it through other means too. I think this is the problem with talking about e-collars is uh, sometimes they dominate so much of the conversation that if you're not in the know, you might assume that it is a much bigger part of training than than you otherwise. Um, you know, and I, I said that to Ivan on his podcast. I said, you know, we if we if we spend three hours talking about e-collars and people are going to assume that that your training is primarily done with e-collars when actually it might only be a tiny part of your training. So anyway, I think it's really good that you you uh, you put that much like consideration into the use of aversives. Um, and I wish that that's the way it was always done. And obviously you're famous at this point for reducing the use of aversives in police dog training. Um, it, should, it, sh I'm, it should be a tiny Still part. Still a work right? in progress, brother. <laughs> it always is, right? It always is. So your position, though, you you would. I'm guessing you're not pro ban if if this is, or maybe you'd feel like there should be an exemption for for the police as well as the military. Um, I'm in favor of education on everything, and here's I, I might I, I, <laughs> Ivan asked me to come on his podcast a while back, and it, it hasn't happened yet. We'll see what's what's going to happen. Not because we haven't; it's just the schedules haven't haven't jibed. Um, so I will continue this, but I'm going to tell him the same. I planned on telling him the same thing that I'm going to say this. And, and I just put this on a Facebook post the other day in another group uh, where I said, well, 47 years of watching this now, I've seen enough to believe that the skill of the trainer is a more reliable predictor of successful outcomes. And I don't mean successful, in other words, just that we get the behavior, but that the dog is happy and having a good time then is whatever tools or philosophical approach they have. I've seen plenty of, I've seen plenty of dogs ruined by electronic collars. And I've seen dogs ruined with appetitive methods. You know, it, you got to remember, I, I liken the clicker to a precision tool. It's like, it, it's like a scalpel. You, you use it deftly to do a perfect thing. If I'm going to go in and have surgery Someone's going to cut me open. I want them showing up with a scalpel and not a steak knife. And by the way, if I'm going to go out to dinner and have a nice ribeye, then I want a steak knife instead of a scalpel. I, so I want the right tool for the job. And um, I believe tools are valuable. They are, what, they are what allowed us as a species to create something no other species ever has and that allow us to plan and do things that we couldn't do otherwise. But every one of those tools, somebody had to learn how to use it to make it work and do its thing. So I'm a believer in education. I'm a believer in people really knowing what's out there. And by the way, 
if you don't want to use aversives, you don't have to. That's your choice. You have the freedom not to do that. And if someone wants to use aversives, then, you know, realize that you are inflicting discomfort on another creature for the purpose, for your own purposes, <clears throat> then you had better do that as ethically as you can. And you better do it as effectively as you can so that you don't have to live your life doing this. I, I've watched people live their lives nagging their dogs and not, you know, it just because they're ineffective at the, at the application of reverses. And I go, I wouldn't want to be married to that person. Oh my gosh, are you going to do this? Um, you know, so it's one of those things that, um, education can go a long way and you have to realize the, both the positive and the balanced training communities have to realize that um, the science on both sides is skewed. Most of the time, most of the people are going in trying to prove something. I've taken part in a regular and annual conference in which grad students are presenting their work in applied behavior analysis. And I go and we look at their posters describing their research projects. Do you know how many times I see somebody saying, we, you know, we attempted to prove. What's wrong with that? Yeah, that's not what science is about, right? No. Science is about figuring out what's the next good set of questions to ask. Amassing evidence. It doesn't find proof. It doesn't establish truth. It finds it amasses evidence. And at some point, you amass enough evidence, you can make better decisions. And we, as a community, as dog trainers of all stripes, um, need to really be willing to look at evidence on all sides so that we can make our own decisions and see where we're going to go. And yes, sometimes you can't get enough of a consensus in a community to do that. And people have to make laws and rules. All right, they're going to do that. And once we do that, we have to abide by them. And we also have to decide, okay, is this working as well as we thought it should? You mentioned uh, clicker training, and I'm glad that you, you did, because I was curious, how did it come about that you ended up I, being mentioned in uh, Don't Shoot the Dog, because that's, I mean, that's, for a lot of people, that's the dog training Bible, right? Um, so, it, it, so I read the book, the first edition, the little tan one. Um, right. So I was at my dad's place visiting him in Georgia, and I was coming home from actually teaching a canine seminar and stopped and visited him, and it was... In September, my birthday is coming in October. My dad said, hey, let's go to the bookstore. I'll buy you a book for, for your birthday. So we got some nice big coffee table book or something like that about Scotland. Um, and then I said, but I want something to read on the plane. And I saw this little book that said, don't shoot the dog, the new art of teaching and training with a circle and a slash under don't shoot the dog. And I said, ah, that's catchy. I'll just grab this. I don't know anything about it. Fly home. I'm on the plane. And I'm flipping through that book and I start to realize that, I mean, it's an easy, it, that little book back then was a really easy read because it was basically the distillation of Bob Bailey's training manual for dolphins and that had been brought in from the Navy and had been used by Tap Pryor with the systems that they had in Hawaii. And then Karen distilled it and, you know, and who's, synthesized who's Tap Pryor? I'm not familiar with that name. Is that uh, Tap Pryor was Tap, yeah. Karen Pryor's first husband. 
Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Thomas A. Pryor. And, and he, he was a naval officer who had, who had worked with the, with the dolphin programs. Okay. So here's, so here's the deal. <clears throat> I'm reading this book on the flight. And at some point, a stewardess, uh, a flight attendant comes to me in their best Georgia accent and says, sir, the passengers asked me if you could kind of keep it down a bit. And I go, I'm just sitting here reading. She's apparently, yes, I can see that. But apparently every once in a while you go, yes, yes. <laughs> and and I, I was so embarrassed, but it was true. So when I got back, I showed my mentor, Tim Teakin, who was my the trainer at Seattle at the time. And my boss, I was the assistant trainer. And we said, oh, this is great. We figured out right away that if you learn 22 sentences from don't shoot the dog, you can train any animal to do anything that it's mentally and physically capable of. And those 22 sentences are, you know, the 10 laws of shaping, the eight ways to get rid of unwanted behavior and the four conditions of stimulus control. If you got those principles, you could devise methods. We loved it. It was a principle-based book. It really, that resonated with us. Then I found out that Karen Pryor, and I was getting ready to take over as the trainer because Tim was getting ready to leave. And so I found out she lived in North Bend, Washington, not far from where I did. At that time, she was married to John Lindbergh and they had a house there. So I looked her up. I called. I said, can I come talk to you? I come talk to her. Not only do I come talk to her, she makes a nice dish of paella. She shows me her trained fish and she hands me a whole bunch of books and tapes and I'm on my way out. Next thing you know, we're starting to revamp our training program based on it. Um, and, you know, the rest is history. She let me um, show some videos of some of the stuff we did. And then mm -hmm. next thing you know, um, I, I realized I started doing this before I knew enough about it to do it right. The first couple of dogs outperformed our veteran dogs, but those poor handlers took a beating trying to figure out things. And what, it was what tough. Is, what was Karen like? Um, you know, uh, gracious, charmous, and on a mission. Gra yeah. yeah gr you know, gracious, charming, and, and on a mission. Yeah. She, yeah. she, she, you know, she is, on, you know, you ask her why she wrote that book. And she told you it was because she wanted people to stop hitting their kids. Did you stay in touch? Uh, we did for a long time, worked with her. Uh, I was part of the Clicker Expo staff and yeah. was one of the, uh, my wife and I were instructors for the Karen Pryor Academy for a while, uh, went our separate ways later on um, and talked to her, did a quick video for her 90th birthday not too long ago. Yeah, she's an absolute legend of the training community. And I'm probably... yeah, The training community owes her a lot because she popularized some very important concepts. I, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the business model of the, whatever they do is one thing, but nobody can ever take away the fact that Karen brought some concepts out there for people to think. Even Ivan, even Michael Ellis will tell you that the principles that she talked about are ones that they have harnessed. Whether they got it straight from her book or from another source, that was the impetus. That is what drove it. So how uh, did you find clicker training? Because I think... Karen's book was like, that was, I'm guessing, that was the the real catalyst for most people to to have ever heard of that kind of training, the clicker training, and also this understanding of positive reinforcement training. So how did you find out about clicker training before that? I'm not saying, um, obviously, clicker training as a concept is way older. I didn't really until book. I got the book. And actually, part of my journey before that 
was another book by Patricia Gale Burnham called Play Training Your Dog, which um, long before Yach Panksepp was putting out material, talked about the power of harnessing play as a reinforcer. And it showed methods and I realized, wow, I could use this. And in fact, it's easier than using force to get the dog to do a bunch of these. And I, and I liked it. But it also, that book didn't harness the power of a bridging stimulus, of a marker. And um, worked well enough I could get stuff with it. But adding the, the marker component was huge. And when uh, I, after I talked to Karen, I wound up going to one of the um, click and treat workshops that she was doing at the time with Gary Wilkes before they had a falling out. And, um, and I saw Gary Wilkes, who was at that time where the people, whatever you want to say about him, Gary Wilkes was one of the most fluid natural trainers I've ever seen. And he had a lot of, lot of skill. And one of the things that he could do, you would see on one of those old videos, he was kneeling on the floor, having a conversation with everybody in the audience, talking as fluidly as he could. At the same time, he was training this puppy to down and literally got this puppy from bouncing around like a ping pong ball in a windstorm to dropping and offering downs to him in a matter of maybe about three to five minutes. Yeah. At that point, I said, I'm sold on this marker thing. I, I realized that's the that was a piece I had been missing. So that mm. for me was the the, the click or treat workshops were what got me, um, made me aware of the power of markers at that point. Yeah, and at so that funny. time, it was a clicker was the marker. So funny you saying about uh, Ka Karen and Gary because that's like almost a uh, microcosm for what was to come. <laughs> Oh yeah. Oh yeah. In the fallout between balanced training and positive training. Yeah. Yeah. Over so, the same things. Yeah. So funny. And, uh, and, and so here's the thing. I happen to move in circles where I run into some of Gary's students. And some some of those people are like, I've never had a better dog in my life. I'm happier than I've ever been. I'm like, boy, some people are gonna they don't want to hear that. And yeah. then you know, I'm sure there are other people who are going to say, man, this guy did not resonate with me. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I mean, for me personally, like I was, uh, you know, I got into dog training for Susan Milan. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then um, and then I discovered Karen's book. And then I was like a devotee after that, you know, very mm -hmm. uh, just obsessed with clicker training. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's just it's interesting. Um, and also I guess growing, like, I'm not so young that the internet has always been as big as it is, but, uh, you know, it's always been a massive source of information for me. So it's interesting. And also I didn't experience like what life was like before don't shoot, shoot the dog and even Caesar Milan and how dog training became really popular after that. Mm -hmm. So, um, I'm get, I'm guessing that clicker training really wasn't like something that was done very much before Don't Shoot the Dog. No, it 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 started its upswing in the mid '90s, early to mid '90s, um, and it took hold because it it solved some problems. And I'll tell you a, a classic example. Um, I went to Mexico back in the early 2000s hosted there by Darwin Angulo. And 
I taught in an audience in, in an auditorium, and we had over a hundred people there. Three of them were women. Darwin had already produced a video with Alpo as his sponsor about clicker training. And I was talking about the use of positive reinforcement. We did some demonstrations there and everything like that. And like after it was over with, the audience was gracious. They were very kind to me, male and female, irrespective. They, they did all this. And then I told Darwin, I said, watch out. Because this is going to change things. Because in a system that up until that point, because many of these people were competitors in biting sports that, that attended this, and they used you know, pretty harsh, forceful methods. And they could apply, and because there were some big, strong guys that could apply physical force. And I said, skillfully used clicker training will give people who are less strong, have less power, equal access to better performance or comparable access to better performance. You have just opened the door for women to enter the dog training business in this country. It is going to change because it was a largely male-dominated profession mm-hmm. at that point. Then the next time I go back in 2015, 2016, Jen and I go back and there, there's a conference, 60% women, 40% men. Well, not, I mean, no. the, the, the change in the industry is huge. Yeah. I mean, and, as, a, as a guy, if I go to a seminar, actually it depends which seminar I go to, but if I go to, if I go to, a, certainly if I go to a positive training seminar, then it's going to be, I, I mm-hmm. well, it's really not unusual for me to be the only guy there. Right. Yeah. Yep. So, and it doesn't have to be broken down on, on gender lines. It, it, it can be broken down on physical size and strength lines. It can be broken down on willingness. You know, just your general willingness to create discomfort. You know, the, my one objection to negative reinforcement as a training process is that by definition, you have to apply a contingent aversive before you can make it work. And people say, no, 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 negative reinforcement. The aversive is non-contingent. And and I go, no. If you're trying to use negative reinforcement to train a dog to sit, are you going to pull up on the leash or push the button on the e-collar to create the discomfort that you can take off of that dog when it sits, if it's already sitting? No, it's differential punishment of other. It's a DPO process. And some people, well, DPO doesn't appear in the literature. Yes, it does. You can find it, but it's not out there because people don't talk about it much. Why? Because it's a taboo subject. But the reality is, if you're going to use negative uh, negative reinforcement, you have to apply DPO first. So that you've never even heard anyone say DPO. I obviously everyone's familiar. Well, not everyone, but people are familiar with DRO. DRO and DRI. Yeah, you know. you know, we and and DRE, we can talk about that. But DPO, <laughs> we got all kinds of acronyms. I love but it. But DPO I... is the is the first step in a negative reinforcement training protocol. It is not the natural way that negative reinforcement happens in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. the dog is lying in the shade and it's fine. Everything's great. The sun moves. Now it's hot. The son didn't say, well, I think I'm going to punish that dog now, so it'll move back to the shade. No, it just happens. That's not DPO. It is the non-contingent aversive that the dog's movement 
can re you know they can reinforce themselves by moving. Uh, great. Isn't that what you described though when you were talking about your e collar training with the tap on the shoulder? Wouldn't yeah, that so, be DPO? Um, so the so you start out with something that isn't aversive, but something they're aware of, and you actually you try to. And if you have to, with some dogs, you have to make it something sufficiently annoying. The dog will like, ah, I don't like that, but not enough that it, it fights. And then you have to realize that when the dog gets aroused and they get in that, they're not going to be as sensitive to it as they would otherwise. But you do have to install it. You have to install. It, it's, it's like emergency brakes. Your car is safer because you have emergency brakes, but they don't work unless you install them, unless you test them. And unless you use them at that point, uh, yeah, so you have to do that. Ideally, though, when it comes to true emergencies, not just like parking, but like your your foot pedal doesn't work and you need to slow the car down. Hopefully you can pull on that handle. It has a physical cable to the brake and slow it down. That's why they call it an emergency brake. Yeah. Um, that doesn't. That doesn't mean you rely on it. That doesn't mean you use it all the time. Mm -hmm. I used to liken it. I used to commute 55 miles to work. And um, so one time I put a tape recorder on. I think it was, yeah, it was still a tape recorder. But it was that far back. I put a tape recorder on in the car as I was driving. And every time I touched my brake, touched my clutch, because it was a manual car, uh, touched my gas or turned my steering wheel, I narrated what I was doing. Then later on, I took a piece of paper and I transcribed all that. And I found that in the course of that drive, getting where I wanted to go, I spent almost all my time with my foot on the gas. Occasionally, I would put the clutch in, let the car coast because I was coming to a stop, and I would touch the brake long enough to make that stop. And then we were up and we were going again. I would never have my brake on there at the same time I'm trying to give it gas. I would never put the clutch in at the same time I was trying to get it to go, except to change gears and go faster. I only put the emergency brake on when I got to the end of the deal and went, and we're done. And then it was a parking brake more than an emergency brake. Never had to use the emergency brake because things were, my brakes had failed. Mm -hmm. um, and so I liken that to the way I look at using the operant conditioning paradigm. People talk about it being quadrants. It's actually not quadrants. Don't think of it. I, I got this at the latest Imata conference this year in Atlanta. I wish I could remember who said it, but it was brilliant. It's two procedures and four contingencies and four, you know, and, and four outcomes. When you think about it that way, it's either reinforcement or punishment, and it's either adding or, or subtracting something. It's that simple. You don't have to do it. And I found that um, that I use that drive to work as my model for the way I want to train. So I spend way more time on the gas, way more time with the thing that makes the dog go, food, toys, play, interaction with me, whatever it is, interaction with another dog, if that's what's their jam. And then um, the steering wheel only gives it guidance. Your clicker is your steering wheel. It's what takes the energy of the car and gives it direction. Your marker, your yes, your good, your whatever it is, that's what gives it direction. Your brakes... Well, you know, you're putting in the clutch is like, okay, that's an extinction process. Extinction. So putting in the clutch is like extinction. Eventually momentum will die and the thing will stop. 
but we'll talk about that later. Remind me to talk about the headbanging pigeons. And your brakes are there to keep things from momentum from going too far and getting to the point where that momentum would put you into an intersection and we're going to have a collision, bad things happen. But you hardly use them at all. You're not going to get very far if you're on your brakes, except if you're in a traffic jam. But generally speaking, if you're driving down the road, you don't use it. And that's the way I want to use the operant conditioning pair of mine. As little as possible with my time on those other things, way more time on the gas, oh, all the time that. thinking about where the steering wheel is pointing us. I get that and, totally. I just thought that it meant like when you do use the e-collar, it was more like, uh, you know, you said it's a tap on the shoulder. It's the like, I don't, I don't know how to describe this in an operant way, but it's like, it's the almost the reminder that you need to wait. You need to, a cue is coming, right? So how many people have you seen whose dogs will sit reliably when they say sit and lift their hands up? Right. So it's, you when, saying it's a cue. So think about it. How many dogs have you seen that will reliably sit when they say the word sit and raise their hands up? Mm -hmm. But if you take the hand away, what happens to the sit? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, some dogs have only learned the hand signal. Right. And then um, because dogs, we know that dogs are attendant to visual stimuli more than they are auditory ones. And it takes a while, but it's also more a reliable predictor because that's maybe where the treat was when you lured and all these other factors are in there. But that's a compound cue. But the dog says, sit means sit. When I hear this sound and I see that hand move, if I get only one, but not the other, that doesn't mean it. It might mean it if I see this, but I might've missed the word, maybe I'll go. But compound cues are all over the place all the time. So if you create a compound cue, and we do this unintentionally with detector dogs or with sport detection dogs all the time, where the handler's presence or certain movements become a reliable predictor. Oh, we're getting close. And the dog now knows that that's there. Well, you can do the same thing, whether it's with that e-color on vibrate or low-level stimulation, or you can do it with a, um, a another something that gets through that fog of war in that moment. Um, and you carry them together. And it doesn't do anything more except, like I say, be that tap on the shoulder that goes through the sensory exclusion and says, okay, pay attention. Here so we are. So what is it That's compounded what... with? Is it is do you tend to use it with the out or like a recall or um I'll I'll tend to use it, I'll tend to use it before I get it on something where the dog can be fully invested invested in something. I'll tend to use it on something where I can manage it with a lead first. So in other words, they're running out to go get a toy that's, you know, 35 feet away. I pay the lead out. And when they're about 20 feet away, I'll give the recall cue at the, you know, and I'll proceed the recall cue with that tap. that set the recall cue. They turn, they come. And once I see that they've locked eyes on me, then the tap stops. So in other words, it, it gets through that. And pretty soon you can see that it's on there. And then once I've got that established, I can go ahead and I can start to do it after I've given a cue. And you'll see them, they'll be fully into it. I'll give the cue and it has the power to get through on a dog that's really spun up and you've really got them aroused. And that's what, that's what you're hoping for. You're hoping you can mimic that level of arousal they're gonna get in a real world confrontation. And this will help them get through that moment. Mm, that's um, interesting. Once you've moved to the, I was trying to figure out as you're saying that, once you've moved to the after the cue, Presumably, oftentimes the dog is going to get to the point where they they respond and there's no need to 
to do the stim, right? If they if they actually fully perceive it, yes. But when you get in those moments where they don't perceive the auditory stuff because they've got auditory exclusion, mm -hmm. then you're hoping that you can get through the tactile stuff with something that's think, physically on the body. Do you think viewing that through the like operant lens is like too simplistic? You know, when you start talking about negative reinforcement, positive punishment, do you? I don't think it. I don't think it's too simplistic. I think that the operant lens actually makes sense. It actually does make sense if you look at it from the it so this is old 3d movies how did you see in 3d when you went to an old 3d movie what did you do i wear the glasses is that what you're talking about and what do the glasses have in the, the red old and the blue school, huh? red and the blue, red and the blue. Uh -huh. you have the operant lens here and the cognitive lens here that gives you the 3d image that you wouldn't get otherwise the cognitive piece is is not just about cognition, but it's also about what Panksept has described about the systemic changes in the dog's perception based on the activity that's engaged in. And I think I, I may be misstating the science, but I'll tell you, you know who's really getting into this right now? An interest. Uh, you want to have a far out interview? Interview Ron Watson, the okay. the disc dog guy. Oh, I tell you what, that, guy, that. that guy's going to be like, he's going to be the Nietzsche of dog training one of these days. Really? He's actually, no, not Nietzsche. He's going to be like, he's farther out than that. I got to tell you, <laughs> he is, but he's really been giving some thought to all these things there about harnessing arousal and the, and and what what state changes are oh, and wow, how I'm it affects the dog's ability to perceive cues. Okay, I'm definitely looking into that. Ron sure. Watson, dude. Okay. Got okay. to talk to him. And you, you know what I love about him? He's one of those guys who competes at a high level in his sport, but he says, I don't really care about the trophies anymore. Now I'm at the point where like, did my dog and I just have like the most fun today or was it more fun yesterday? And we're always trying to go for that more fun day every day. And I'm like, okay, that's, I, okay. I, I want to, yeah. A, I want to sit down and have a beer with people like that. Yeah. And B, um, I think every dog would want to have that be in what their daily life is. Is this more fun than the day before? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Steve, what are your favorite kind of dogs? Like, do you have a favorite breed? You know, I've worked with German Shepherds most of my working life, and I love them. Um, they've changed. The um, They have changed over the past few years. And um, for not the past few. They, I mean, I've watched the shift over the past 25, 30 years. It's really gotten more profound. In what way? Um, How have they changed? Um, they're harder and sharper than they used to be. Because, um, you know, I think it's accelerated in the years since Malinois started coming into um, IPO competitions and started cleaning up. Um, people started producing more Malinois-like German Shepherds. I like Mal's. I like, I like that. But you know what? Um, I love Kelpies. I like intense dogs, if you can't tell. Um, um, I like... Uh, German pinchers. I had a Doberman. There are too many health problems with them. I love them to death, but boy, howdy, they just, we have a rough yeah. time with that. German pinchers are probably a little more robust. They're not quite as, um, as strong as some hardworking dogs are, but they're pretty cool. Um, I love Springer Spaniels. I mean, I love, I, I love, I love any dog that has a good time with its life. And if that happens to be like, we had a Chihuahua. 
yeah. that we thought was going to be a little demo dog. We take on the road with it, but we made the mistake of getting a solid black dog that when you shoot video, that's not really the best color for it. But she was, she had no concept of her size in relation to the rest of the world. Um, the only thing that scared her was going through a car wash. Everything else she was game for, no matter what. Do you and, think that there is one breed that is the best at tracking? Or maybe just give me the breed that you would like. If you absolutely had to have the best tracking dog, which breed would you go with? Um, I can't. I can't pick one. In other words, if I have someone that's just taking a dog with its natural proclivities, I'm going to go with a bloodhound. Um, but I tell you what, what Johan and his folks in South Africa have done with a bloodhound Doberman cross is pretty amazing. Oh, is that what they're using? Yeah. Um, at bloodhound, coonhound, Doberman cross. It's it's a mixture of bloodhound, coonhound. I love, and, I love those uh, performance dog crosses. I just think are amazing. Yeah. People that uh, yeah, well, you, the law fun. enforcement world is getting a whole lot of malapurds and Mal what? Malapurds. Malinois half shepherd. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have one myself. Yeah, it's either that <laughs> it's either that or a shepanoi. It's a malapurd or a shepanoi. I don't know which. Um, yeah, no, but I they, have you, one you can see them. You see these malinois, I go, that's a little big and a little saddled for a malinois, yeah. you know. Yeah. But um if I get a Malinois that someone has worked with from a puppy and they've been taught him to track people like Dick Stahl, Tobias Gustafson, yeah, then I would say, come find me with that dog. Um, German Shepherd, yep, it could be that. But I'll tell you what, one of the longest treks on record uh, was in South Africa by a Doberman Pinscher. That's, I think, part of the reason why they like him, like him down there for that. Um, I, I'm not as much a breedist as I used to be. I, I definitely don't want to take a breed and take them out of their wheelhouse and, you know, try to put a, a round peg into a square hole. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. It, but I definitely, oh, man, there's just too many cool dogs of too many varieties that um, I like, I like working with it. It's fun. I mean, one of the best drug dogs I ever saw was a Shiba Inu. Wow. Who thought? I'm shocked a by Shiba. That. Yeah. And that was trained by a guy up in Canada by the name of Bill Grimmer. Um, but my that. favorite drug dog I ever had that I worked was an Australian Shepherd. Hmm. And he was just a blast. So interesting. Uh, Do you have, I, I don't want to take too much of your time, Steve, but I also, I love, you know, um, when we had Rob Hewings on the podcast, he had this amazing story about uh, from his time being on patrol as a police dog handler and i'm curious if there's any one incident or story that really comes to mind for you as you know just like highlight real stuff <laughs> i mean i could give you exciting patrol dog stories but maybe i'll tell you a detector dog story okay and um i'll make it as short as i can it was a long story because the foundation was laid, but this is 2002, um, the year after 9-11. And everybody's scared to death about terrorist attacks and everything is spinning up. And the cruise ships were had been sailing out of Seattle for a few years going up to Alaska in the summer. And so they decided they wanted to have, uh, they needed to have uh, dogs sweep the ship's stores before they went onto the ship. 
So I was working with a company that had two dogs and we were sheep sweeping ship stores going on there. And at one point, my dog is going through these pallets along the dock, getting ready to go into the hold on the ship. And my dog all of a sudden turns his nose into the wind, drags me three pallets up, goes into the middle of this, this pallet, shoves his no nose onto a Karcher pressure sprayer box that is wrapped with brown tape, brown packing tape, that brown plastic packing tape, sit there and bangs a sit. I go, rut row. Uh, wait a minute. So I go get the other dog and I decide I'm going to come from the upwind side and see what happens. I'm working along the upwind side. That dog goes around the backside of that paddle. As soon as he gets down with that thing, he bangs, hooks his nose into the wind, goes right to that same box, bangs the sit. At that point, I say, okay, I got to notify security. I notify security. They come out with a hand wand. They say it's hot. Oh, by the way, the label on this box says it's from Hamburg, Germany. It's not on the manifest for the ship. I, we don't know what it is. So then they move that pallet up to the end of the dock. Um, and the end of the dock by the bow of the ship is right next to the Edgewater Hotel in Seattle, which is famous for you being able to sit on your front porch or st stick your head out your window and fish from the hotel, dropping a oh, line wow. into Elliott Bay right there. There are people out there enjoying a beautiful summer sunny day, sitting with their, you know, orange juice, coffee, and and avocado toast, watching all the excitement going on as people are getting onto this ship, and they're just like enjoying it. Everything's fine. Somebody's brought a pallet up there. They don't know any different. And then I go while well, they're talking about security. At this point, didn't really know what to do with this thing, so that's why they had to move it up there. A little while later, dog goes and hits another package. Same brown packing tape. Get the other dog, come the other direction. Bammy, it's it. They hand want it. It's hot. They move it up there. About the time they move it up there, the longshoreman foreman says, why are you guys moving that thing up there? And before anybody could answer, one of the guys says, well, his dog went up there and sniffed at it and sat. They did it a couple of times and they did it with that other one too. At that point, the longshoreman foreman says, everybody's going to lunch. Nobody's moving a thing. You guys just had my dogs move a bomb without telling us we were doing that. We're done. They're all done. Nothing's moving out of the ship. Everything's going crazy. And about that time, a big blue panel truck from the Port of Seattle Police Department rolls in and it says, explosive ordinance disposal, bomb squad. And at that point, as soon as they put out the yellow caution tape across the corner of the dock where those two pallets were, everybody at the Edgewater Inn disappears. <laughs> They're gone. Nobody's sitting out of the dock, out on their bal balcony reading this stuff. They get a robot. They go up. They X-ray it. They can't tell what's in there. It's inconclusive. So they decide to go ahead and blow them and deactivate them. So they get them up there. They get two robots ready, and they simultaneously blow these two things in the water. They get a diver out there. The diver goes in there and retrieves the box. About the time the diver comes up with the boxes, the um, ship's engineer comes down and says, hey, where are my guidance boards? I needed new gyro boards for this thing, and they were being transferred as a ship-to-ship -ship transfer from Florida. And so it turns out that's what was in that box, because when they pulled it up, it was nothing but circuit boards. They couldn't figure out what it was. Oh, and, he, and, and, and so they did a little research, and they found out that what happened is 
when the ship in Florida put those on a truck to ship them out here, they had uh, wrapped the box in packing tape that had been stored in the ship's pyrotechnic locker. It's emergency flares oh. locker. Yeah. Fantastic so the dog, dogs. Huh? But yeah, the dogs slammed it like it was a pound of TNT, just as hard as they could with anything else. The hand wand said it was hot too. So that confirmed the dogs were right no matter what. They were just trying to figure out how that odor got on there. And it took a lot of questioning and all that stuff. And then that was one of those points where you say, yep, everybody says, trust your dog. Yeah, you better trust your dog. Maybe it wasn't an explosive device, but it shows you that if there was, they'd have found it. Yeah. And remember, bomb dogs will go their entire career and they'll never find a real device because their job isn't to find stuff. Their job is to give people peace of mind before they enter a space, knowing that a dog has cleared it. Yeah. And that's why bomb dogs are the hardest discipline to train because they never get reinforced by the work. So you have to be a really, really crafty trainer. And um, so that's my story. And it's not as exciting as about a big Donnybrook and a police dog saving his handler from sheer, you know, from death or anything like that. But it's the one story that I go, yeah, this is kind of the reason I work with dogs because they can do some pretty amazing stuff. No, it's a fantastic story. Thanks for sharing it. That's, that's really cool. Thanks, Steve. My pleasure. Ah, what a brilliant way to end the podcast, huh? <laughs> With a fantastic, fantastic story. Well, thanks for coming on, Steve. Is there anything that you wanted to um, promote, tell people about? Where can they find you? You know, um, I'm Proactive Canine is my my business. If you go to proactivecanine.com, you'll find me there. You can... Um, Look me up. Uh, I just spend my time with working dogs and working people try to move in those circles. So if you know anybody that likes that and they have any questions, I'd gladly be there to try and um, help walk through finding some answers. I don't know if I have them, but I can help walk people through finding answers. Um, and other than that, I'll be teaching at the Western States Police Canine Conference in, um, in Reno this year. I don't think I'm going to make the South Africa conference because they're back to back. And then I got a Washington state conference that's coming up at about the same time. Um, and um, I really just chip away at this job. I, I keep myself busy actually certifying explosive dogs um, for a government agency here in the country right now too. Oh, fantastic. What dogs are you selecting for that, by the way? I don't select them there. They, I, I just come in and do the certification I have to be a neutral third party that has no hand in their training, which is hard for me because every dog I see, I, I have this urge to say, here's what you could do take it to the next level. And that's yeah. not my job. I can't do that. Yeah. Um, but I've seen some really, really excellent Malinois, Shepherds, German Shorthair Pointers, Springers, um, yeah. and Labradors. Yeah. They're really, you know, um, there's a horse guy by the name of John Lyons. And he's famous for saying, there's no bad color for a good horse because people will pick horse because it's pretty. They like the color. And John looks for, is it a good horse? And he doesn't care what color it is. So, I mean, if it's a good dog, I don't care what breed it is. I just love watching them work. Yeah. They solve problems differently. Well, I'm, I'm going to force myself to shut up, Steve, because I'll ask you a million questions and we'll be here for a very long time. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Nick. It was absolute pleasure.
Hey gang, I hope you enjoyed the episode. For me, it was fantastic as an opportunity to meet Steve White, an absolute legend in his field. Really enjoyed the conversation. Really nice guy. If you're not already following me on social media, there's a good reason to. I have an eight-month-old puppy shepherd who is a hell of a lot of work and I'm really uh, posting updates very frequently. I'm kind of treating it like a diary at the moment. So you can find me on Facebook as Nick Benger, uh, just the page as you're welcome to follow that. And then also on Instagram as Nick Benger dog trainer. So that's where you can follow, uh, what I'm up to with my puppy. I think a lot of people are getting a lot out of just listening to my journey. And I'm sure that there will be little things that will help you, or maybe you can just relate to them. So, uh, yeah, I would appreciate if you could give me a follow over there. Also, on October the 7th, we are running an event in Bristol in England. Um, it's an introduction to bike drawing and scootering with Cat Le Chevalier. Hopefully I said that right, Cat. Please don't hate me. If you want to, uh, if you've always kind of wanted, it's like for me, I've really wanted to try bike drawing for a long time, but it's very intimidating. It's very... Um, it's not easy to get involved with. It's not easy to start. And that's why we organized this introduction with Kat to give people an opportunity to try all of the equipment on, give it a go with an expert there where she can kind of walk you through how to get started so that hopefully you can go home and you can uh, you can get the equipment and you can do this yourself. You can add this into your dog's exercise routine. We'll be doing bike drawing and scootering as well. So you can try both and see which appeals to you more. It's something that has actually been requested from us uh, on a local level quite a lot. You don't have to have a husky. You can have uh, any kind of dog, really. Uh, this is something that is is just going to be really fun. And it's something I want to get involved in too. Onyx is a little bit young at the moment, but I'm looking forward to picking up some tips, learning how to do it. So when she's old enough, we can get started. So if you want to sign up for that, then you can find that on houndplus.com. So that's H-O-U-N-D-P-L-U-S.com. Click on events and you'll find it there. I'll try and include it in the show notes as well. Super. Thanks for listening. <laughs>